All right, here it is, the first episode of Locked in My Office. I'm Dr. Shane Oberwehr, and I'm trying to build a recording studio in my office. I figured, what better thing to do than to make a podcast that highlights just not necessarily the cool work at Michigan Tech, but just some of the cool people in and the surrounding Keweenaw area. And so before we really get started, I want to just add a touch of context on where we're going. I've got most of my equipment, and this first episode was essentially ran as a pilot um, to a select audience just to kind of get some feedback. And so in the future, we're going to take that feedback. So um, if you're watching on video, there'll be better lighting and a couple more camera angles um, down to you know audio and like the pacing and things along those natures. Um, those are things that I want to um, try and add into the other episodes. And one of the biggest changes being that um, in future episodes, we're gonna be looking to have co-hosts and more than just one co-host or more than one host. Um, so that's something to look forward to and hopefully things will keep getting better. Um, if there's any recommendations you might have for um, improvements, you can always email us at limo at mtu.edu. That's L-I-M-O at mtu.edu. Um, yeah, so in this first episode, I talked to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jared Wolf. And so we have all sorts of interesting conversations. We start off with cults, and then we um, there's conversations about birds sprinkled all throughout because Dr. Wolf does a lot of work with birds. Um, and then we kind of touch on some more human elements like being in a family with prison members and things of that nature. And, um, so I super appreciate you giving Locked Inside My Office a um, opportunity, and I hope you'll stick with us for a few episodes where we work out some of our kinks. Thank you, and enjoy. All right, welcome to the first episode of Locked in My Office at Michigan Tech. I'm Shane, and I'm a guy that works at Michigan Tech. And with me, I have Jared, another guy that works at Michigan Tech, specifically Forestry. What's the, what's the big acronym? It's College of Forest Resources Environmental Science. There we go, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a big one. Um, and so, yeah, you've stumbled on this podcast either because I've shoved it in your face or because you, you've stumbled on it, and that's cool. We're glad to have you here. Um, so, real quick before we get started on the body of the podcast, I, I'll look at you. Um, the point of this podcast really is to paint a human picture of, oh, that sounds kind of gross, paint a picture of the humans <laughs> at Tech either students, faculty, staff, people that visit us, people in the Keweenaw, um, just to kind of document the experiences or document who, who you are, not necessarily as just like a collection of your works, but actually like that human, that human level of you know, struggles you've faced, um, achievements that you're really proud of, bizarre thoughts that you've had. Mm. Um, and so... I didn't, I didn't want to really put us in a box, right? I didn't want to put the podcast in a box, but more let it breathe and have that flexibility to get into those interesting conversations. Cool. Um, so anyways, yeah, I'm, I'm here with Dr. Jared Wolf, and I couldn't think of a better person to try this out. Um, I love talking to you, and yeah. You're no, I love cool talking dude. to you, too. It's an yeah. honor to be locked in your office. Yeah, yeah. So um, you talk a lot about cults. I do. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 intrigues you about cults? So, you, so uh, once again, to, to frame that right, you're a forestry guy, but right, you've got. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, it's a, it's definitely not like a professional ambition to like be an expert in cults, and probably there's a whole uh, subgenre of people who are uh, fascinated with cults. You know, in a in a in a kind of like a a, a layperson type of like. Uh, uh, vibe in the sense that they 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 watch lots of cult documentaries read a lot about cult figures and stuff and and it has always like uh appealed to me and i think one of the reasons why see if i can like i haven't really thought about it from first principles but i think it's a, it, it provides so much insight into human nature um and how certain people can hijack certain um attributes of our behaviors that have been adapted to our success like for example we're all apparently adapted 
to be followers, right? We, we copy each other. I mean, that's like, and we can see our kids copying us. Um, and that's how they learn to navigate their world and not fall into a fire or fall into a river. And we also aspire to follow thought leaders and people who are potentially generating new technologies, whether or not that's a new arrowhead or even somebody who's developing some software program. In the hierarchy of societies, those people are elevated. And in a perfect world, those people's ambitions would be very benevolent or at least altruistic. But yet other people can do one of two things. One, they can have uh, malevolent intentions. Uh, maybe um, they're sociopaths and they're, um, they're self-absorbed. They're, 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 um, and then on top of that, they want to give the appearance, the false appearance that they're developing some sort of new technology or some new philosophy that's revolutionary purely to get people to fall in line with them and their beliefs to, to amass power. And so I feel like, like cult leaders provide insight because they're kind of exceptions to the rule of what a good leader should be. And by being exceptions to the rule, they prove the rule a little bit of like the rule being uh, evolutionary adaptations of people being followers, uh, hierarchies we create, and then following in line with those, those hierarchies and following those thought leaders in, in, in really showing it, stripping it bare and showing it. And I think that's why I, I, whenever I, I read or watch a documentary about a particular cult, I put myself in the shoes of the cult followers. And like, how exactly, what was so attractive that this person selling or philosophy they're, they're, you know, they're, they're developing that would, that would cause someone to like follow them or cause me to follow them. I don't know if that answers the question, but it's just, it really touches on like the nature of, of, of human, um, a deep, a deep aspect of human behavior that I find very fascinating. Do, do you, okay. So you do a lot of stuff with birds. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering like, are there any links there between like, interest in cults and like kind of trying to do a low grade just study just by watching and learning about cults is there <laughs> is is there any is there any link to to birds in any way shape or form yeah i mean i think most biologists wildlife ecologists who think really deeply about the systems and the species they study they provide deeper insight into the forces that shape life. Like for example, it could be evolutionary processes that gave rise to everything around us, or it could even be like really unique behaviors that are exemplified in birds that are quite mysterious or like cult-like behavior provide insight into a deeper pattern of some sort of behavior. So for example, there's uh, a book published by a Yale professor, Rick Prum. It's called The Evolution of, of Beauty. And he focuses on uh, a number of different examples, but one of them, this is a super controversial book. It came out not that long ago, a few years ago. But one of the examples, and this gets back to providing some deeper insight into like life itself and, and, and potentially motivating forces exhibited by, by humans as well as wildlife and shown through birds, is um, these crazy uh, dances that certain birds do to attract a mate. So there's a a breeding system called a classical lek where the males get together and often they're they're ornamented and they do crazy dances and then they don't provide anything else than sperm genetic materials females come select the best mate and then they they collect that genetic material and they go off and raise the young by themselves that being said so there's all these questions around this like what is it about a certain male like a cult leader that's yeah. attracting a female to it and the deeper you probe the crazier that question becomes, or potentially the answers to that question. For example, it's been, there was, early on, Darwin coined the sexual selection because he thought it was different than natural selection. He thought there was something special about this process. Um, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace came along, who was Darwin's contemporary, but he, but he lived beyond Darwin, and, and he kind of changed the, the nature of the debate to being that Sexual selection, I'm selecting a characteristic in, a, in an individual um, because that is reflective of an honest signal, of good genes, of you know, an ability to fight disease or, or whatever the fit case may be, some increase in fitness. So here's where birds get crazy. Here's a bird called a club-winged mannequin in the Amazon 
that has uh, that does a display. It's a lek, and the male whacks its wings above its head at a fast rate of speed. Birds to maintain flight have hollow uh, wing bones, and um, but this display causes the evolution of solid wing bones. So they're actually uh, they're worse flyers than they would be if they didn't have this display. But the females keep selecting it and selecting yeah. it and selecting, it. and they selected it to the point that there's some sort of like reticulate crossover of that particular genetic, the the gene responsible for that trait or complex of genes responsible for that trait carried over into the females. So now the selection was so strong that the females now have solid bones. So it's not just like non-adaptive. So if you have adaptive sexual selection, they're selecting for genes. This coloration is representative of something good. Then there's non-adaptive sexual selection. Maybe it doesn't matter. They're selecting a color because it mimics a fruit that they eat. But then there's like maladaptive sexual selection mm -hmm. where the pursuit of beauty is such a driving force that they'll select it to their own detriment, which is, yeah. can I cuss? Yeah, yeah. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like yeah. fucking crazy. Yeah. And you almost like, so there's like parallels with like cult behaviors, right? These like motivating forces or somebody's selling something to uh, a cult member. And I'm not a, uh, an expert in cults by any means. I just find them fascinating. But bird behavior could be analogous in the same way that there's certain motive, there's certain forces that are unknown to us or we're trying to identify that are motivating these behaviors or selecting a certain individual or following a certain individual. Hmm. So they provide deep insight into the nature of behavior and life itself, really. Yeah, yeah. So, so Does that I, make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. That, that's, that's super interesting. I was trying to think of like an analogy, like if we only had sex with people that were really good at dancing and then we had this mm. like crazy culture mm -hmm. of people that only focused <laughs> on dancing. We, For sure. Like, yeah. So there's all this like balancing. So if you had that, and it, this is presumably what balances uh, what often people refer to as like runaway sexual selection. Like if, if the drive of females, in this case of these birds, these lucking birds, is so strong that it drives an ornamentation to such crazy extent that natural selection will kick in and they'll obviously, they, they can't fly, they can't feed, they're yeah. being killed by predators. So with your example, there was like a culture of humans that was just 100% dedicated to like <laughs> dancing, like s s natural selection would kick in and like, we, you know, we'd be... Couldn't build houses We anymore, couldn't build yeah. houses, we couldn't drive cars, you know. There's people just like beatboxing yeah. and dancing, man. So there are all these selective pressures that balance it out. Yeah. Yeah. Just as a side note, like it's one of the theories of why the Amazon in particular is so species rich is this process of of diversification where species tend not to go extinct in the Amazon. Um, it's relatively stable compared to places up here where like there's glaciation events that wipe out forests and drive everything to extinction and then they recede and either species have to evolve or, or, or migrate in. In the Amazon you don't have those processes so you have, or not to such an extreme extent, so you have species evolving and migrating in and never going extinct. So there's species packing, there's very little extinction, which gives rise to this like over time, this super diverse community of birds. And because of that reduced extinction pressure, probably you could give rise to cultures of birds that are so focused on dancing. Yeah, you know? Like it would be awesome. hard to do in other places than the tropics. It's like the crazy crucible for yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, Another thing that you talk of that I, I, I've never asked you about, but it, it kind of could be linked to cults, maybe not, but mm. as, as you say, you have, you have a lot of family members in jail. Mm -hmm. Like, what, <laughs> what, what, like, were, mm. A, was any, were any of them cultists, or B, like, has that, how has that affected your life, just in, in general? Um, yeah, I guess a little background and it definitely is doesn't I don't think of this as like my identity because like uh you know the the overwhelming character of my identity but um I would say relative to like a lot of friends um but I know you have family members and and in-laws and stuff that have you know had sim potentially similar circumstances yeah. but but yeah I mean I was acutely aware when I was young you know my dad did uh 10 years in San Quentin um my, I have uh, 
five brothers and sisters, four half, two half sisters, one half brother, and and one real brother. So there's five siblings. I'm sorry, four, three half siblings, one full sibling, and me. And um, yeah, it's um, they. My full brother has been in and spent more of his adult life incarcerated. Um, my one of my half sisters has had a lot of run-ins with the law. A lot of nieces and nephews in and out of incarceration. My half brother has spent a lot of time in 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 prison in San Quentin. And I don't know. I've I've thought about it in the sense that I don't know. Um, I I I had my half sister tell me a couple years ago, like, "Oh, wow, we're you're so you know you broke the cycle yeah, of yeah. criminality." Yeah. And I thought about that because I really didn't. It was more of a, I feel like it takes a lot of, and I don't mean strength in the positive sense. I guess gumption would be a better word. Or, or like if you're going to live, if you're going to try to pay the bills day to day and you are going to partake in recreations that involve in, injecting foreign substances into your veins, like that takes a lot of um, throwing caution to the wind, I, for lack of a better word, like strength to overcome the fears. I'm very fearful of injecting foreign substances <laughs> in my, my veins. I'm very fearful of like breaking the laws and the repercussions that that entails. And for me, the path of least resistance was just pursuing my interests, which happened to be dealing with like nature and birds. So it was very non-strategic other than just like following a particular path. Um, I don't know. I think there's like an element of rebellion involved that in under certain circumstances probably served my lineage well. I, I talk about it in terms of like a gene because my family, we talk about it in terms of a gene. We call it the wolf mutant gene that arises and, and causes people to, you know, act not according to their best interests. I don't know, man. I get, that's not a very good answer, but like yeah. I, my father was a very good guy, one of the very smart man, and he uh, he just had this this rebellion. He really didn't like authority. Um, he would prefer potentially to like make a living outside of the bounds that normal people make a living. That like that lifestyle like like really appealed to him. I think there's also delayed gratification. If you're smart enough and you think you can beat the law, well, why would I work for that ten thousand dollars when I can go take it? You know, and you do the calculus in your head and like it leads some people to do that. Um, that has something to do with it. But I think as it, it as it, it's that experience of having a lot of uh, incarcerated family members in my life, I think has um, provided the nuance. Well, I meet, I meet a lot of people who are like, don't know a lot of people who've been incarcerated and their worldviews differ from mine dramatically. Like, I feel like I understand, I can meet people almost like, like, you know, I don't know if it's in vogue anymore, but like you used to be able to say in the 90s, like, oh, I can tell. And I say this because I, I, you know, I, I, I love gay people. I'm not disparaging them. But someone would be like, oh, I have gaydar or something. Like, oh, I know this person's probably like homosexual. Like, I, I have that for like convicts. I can tell <laughs> if somebody's been like in prison for long periods of time. Really? I think so. Yeah. Like I meet them and I, 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 I haven't done like a, a blind control study, you know, but like I, I feel like I meet people and I, I know right I, off the bat, like how they carry themselves that they've been incarcerated. I kind of want you to meet my in-laws then <laughs> uh, just cause like we're, we're kind of like, um, Sarah and I are kind of unsure if, if they've ever spent time in jail. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you say like, you're kind of talking about that idea of like you you broke the cycle or became successful. I I know like that's that's what's you know people also say about me like oh you were, I, not that um, the old letters were unsuccessful people, but uh, you know whatever level of success I have, and, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Like I I've never felt like I've never felt like success was my motivation. I've always just had this extreme fear of failure. Mm. Like that that's like so I'm only successful just because it's the opposite of failure. Oh, Th does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. my Dr. Bresky, my wife is that way. That's a really? motivating force for her. It would so that that's like not for me. <laughs> really? No. So well, 
I, I kind of always felt like, I hadn't realized this until recently, but I could be classified as a perfectionist. Hmm. Would, would Kristen feel that same way? Like, and, and I, there's a lot of like, like perfectionists is like, oh, you, you like produce perfect work, but it's, it's not that. That's not what it means. It means like sometimes I have such a fear of like screwing it up that I won't want to try at all because I know mm. I won't be able to do Like the same thing, like this is the second take of this podcast, the second attempt, because that first attempt was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to like screw mm. it up, you know? Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's, that's not a thing. That's not an affliction you have. No, it's not. And I, I, like, I think my professional ambitions, like, you know, we're probably, you don't get to be, uh, you know, teaching at Michigan tech or a professor at Michigan tech without having some ambition. But I think my ambition probably is derived from a real interest in this, in the study of, uh, you know, of, of the focus of my study. What's interesting though, is I've met a lot of people, I think in our positions that there's also fear, fear of success, which I find limiting. Really? Yeah. Like, um, but you find it limiting yourself. No, I, oh. I see it in other people ah. and it, but it's like so routine that, um, I think it's, I think it's fairly commonplace where you reach a threshold and it's like, Hey, you've done this great thing. You've produced this great product. You've done this great study. You've done all the legwork, which is in a tremendous amount of investment of time and energy of expertise. Get it past the threshold, get it published, like, you know, get a patent, get something. And then it stops right mm -hmm. there. And I, that's always, that fascinated me. It's probably, it's like a pretty low resolution definition, but I always feel like those people suffer from like a fear of, of success. Like, why wouldn't you push it back? For me, it's like you get to the finish line. It's like, awesome. That's the yeah. best part is pushing it over. But that seems to limit a lot of people. Not me, but I, I see it a, frequently. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that, that's something I experienced like in, in grad school. Like, like your dissertation is like so close, but mm -hmm. that like that last little bit. And I feel like that's, that's a common thing that a lot of grad students like, oh, yeah. face, right? Is that, that last little bit? It's like the... I, I've, I'm going to botch the, the number, but it's like the last 10% takes 90% of the time or something along those lines. Or maybe it's the 80-20 rule. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, maybe that's like referred to as like senioritis. Or, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. That yeah. might just be burnout. Yeah. It's, probably, it's, it's probably hard to disentangle burnout from like fear of success, yeah. you know, or they're, they're intertwined somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey. What uh, what bird would make the best butler? Butler? Yep. Probably the one that closely mimics a monkey. Unfortunately, birds obviously don't have like opposable thumbs. And, <laughs> um, but probably one that has like a strong mouth that's highly intelligent. So like a large corvid. Like a a large corvid. Yeah. So, oh, sorry. So corvid is like the family corvidae. Ravens, crows, and jays. So, like, uh, yeah. There's crazy YouTube videos of, like, New Caledonian crows, like, solving all types of wild yeah. puzzles. And, uh, yeah. You know, my dad believed, and he was he only had, like, an, an eighth-grade uh, education, but he's very, very bright. Um, but he, he's, he's like, you know what I heard when I was a kid? Is if you capture a crow and cut its tongue down the middle, and then they can speak. <laughs> like a parrot oh, <laughs> like really like the limiting factor of them like vocalizing is uh the morphology the tongue, of their tongue yeah. and uh i was like did you ever see that he's like no i never saw it, <laughs> <laughs> it growing up yeah so yeah. it'd be cool if you could do that to a crow well it wouldn't be cool it would be cruel but then it would be a, a really good butler that you could communicate with yeah yeah start your own podcast with the <laughs> um so, how, how, how deep are we into this thing? Uh, does it say a number? I don't know. It's not even recording, so whatever. No, I'm just kidding. It's recording. <laughs> um, so, um, you live up here in the beautiful Keweenaw. It's starting to snow. Um, what are you most looking forward to now that it's starting to snow and, and that? Um... Uh, I really, I'm from Northern California, so we've never, unless you went up into the mountains, you didn't really have this dramatic change of, of seasons. And so 
it's a really special place to be with such distinct transitions, particularly like with wildlife I'm into. Uh, they all start doing really remarkable things. Um, either they move out of here or they change their behaviors in pretty remarkable ways. And part of that, I've, I've since I've been up here, I've gotten really into uh, hunting, so particularly deer hunting. And uh, I was just out this morning, actually. Um, and the cold weather hits and, and the, the rut starts when the males start chasing females. And, and it's super dynamic behaviors that you, if you want to get really good at hunting up here, particularly away from agricultural fields where lots of people hunt in Michigan, but out in the backwoods, like going and finding the right blend of trees for the right types of food resources next to like a potential little valley with the military ridge where the bucks will bed. And so it's really neat. It's a neat pursuit. And the snow changes those dynamics a lot. Well, uh, so on, on that topic, so what the description you just gave me sound, sounded something like a, almost like a professor would say. Oh, sorry. How, well, no, 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 that's, that's okay. But I'm, I'm wondering like how I find like hunting to be a very primal thing. Mm. And, and, I, and I'm curious like how sure. scientific versus how primal... Uh, it, like how how is that for you specifically especially like having a forestry background well it's definitely um it's a it's a pers it's a it's a hobby that serves you well if you can um be reductionist um particularly like breaking things down to like what foods do they need based on season? Where will they move? Where's the most pressure? What's the best types of habitats based on where in their life cycle a particular deer is? And then map onto that like your movements to go try to encounter a deer and, and shoot it. It's archery season right now, so in my case, be shooting it with an arrow. Um, so there there is a lot of room for applying good science, but I don't think that's any different than like a car mechanic, right? Like. And you can even do like little experiments. Um, some of them, they're obviously like observational where, you know, okay, if we have a good blend of like oak and maple and aspen and it's on a ridge, I predict that there's going to be a buck bedding there. And you can go up there and, and you can look for tracks or flush a buck and be like, okay, I've confirmed, you know, there's, this supports this hypothesis I generated. And I'm sure it's similar to like a car mechanic. Like, does it have spark? Does it have gas? Conduct a little experiment to see yeah. which is which. And that will lead you towards a path of success. So, which is it's really like, I was talking to some students about this the other day, um, where that's so Western, like our approach versus like, um, you know, a more... Um, uh, I guess like, uh, you mean like Western in terms of Western United States or no, Western like, science? Okay. Like, yeah. it's not like, you know, I feel it's like potentially removed from the more primal pursuit of going out there and like, in, in feeling your way to a deer potentially yeah. through a deeper knowledge of like just having lived in the woods your whole life and like knowing, yeah. you know, it's interesting, like no expert on like native American beliefs, but out West, I, I would interface a lot with some tribal communities and I've tried to, and particularly with birds, uh, where we worked on a project, um, we actually just came out with a, a, a paper working with a, the Karuk tribe where we're trying to integrate like bird management into indigenous prescribed burning and whatnot, but that's besides the point. The point being is that when I was trying to understand their perspectives on birds and bird migration, it was not just like different than Western, it was like fundamentally different the approach where we're reductionist and if you ask like um, if you went back 300 years ago and you asked a Kruk tribe member like why do you why do birds migrate and they would it's all it would be symbolic and full of meaning well mm. the yellow-breasted chat arrives to call the salmon up the river it's oh, not yeah. reductionist it's like it's symbolic and within that symbology is a story that helps them like navigate or in understand their world sure so i imagine like if you went back 300 years ago and there's a tribal member who's hunting a deer up here it'd be very different than our approach yeah. of like does it have oak does it have aspen <laughs> you know it'd be like there would be like it'd be rich in symbology and knowledge yeah. um and that's kind of I, I feel like jealous i wish i had that like i feel like western science does a really good job of squeezing all the soul 
yeah, yeah. out of That's... a pursuit, you know? And it, yeah. But you have those moments. Like I was out with my son Lawrence the other day and we were walking through the woods and the breeze came in and I was having him, the breeze is giving us a hug, you know? And I was trying to purposefully get away from that overwhelming like reductionist view of western society and have them interact nature at a more visceral level by giving the wind a hug yeah yeah it's interesting like uh kind of like i have a a follow-up question for that but uh i've i've noticed that same thing with like learning guitar um is i so that they're they're, like people tell you you gotta learn your scales you gotta learn your chords you gotta learn all that stuff and uh so i i really really started focusing on guitar like during grad school and I found that it it became my escape from like all like the research and all like that pressure yeah in that like I didn't want to like learn like I want it to be like an intuitive and just like mm. kind of feeling things and like remove that science to the point where like there's a lot of like I know like where some notes need to be relative to some notes but I don't know many scales um and so I think that that's kind of like an analogous thing. I think thing. it is. And I, I think like, and of course, Western science has to reduce everything and like, and label it. And I think that might be like the flow state yeah. where you're like, you don't have to consciously do some sort of exercise in, um, you know, reducing it to its base components and then reason up to a beautiful song where it just like emerges from an unknown space. Yeah. Um, and I probably that if you've heard of that like flow state, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People get in the flow state, yeah. like that's probably like the closest we could get to it, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. What well, but my follow up question on the hunting was you got like an eight point buck in this office right now. So in this office, maybe like three hundred square feet, various things. <laughs> Just you right now, you think you could take <laughs> take him in a fight. Like, mm. like fight to the death. Like, this animal wants to kill you. Might be rabbit or something along those lines, and you want to kill it. What's that look like? I, I've actually thought about this question. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. not just about bucks, but all types of wildlife. Like, if there was, if you had, you know, like particularly like things that actually might eat you, like a bear. But a yeah. buck. I mean, I think in our minds. So one story is like. So I did my PhD and I still do a fair bit of work in the Brazilian Amazon. And um, I, so I spent a lot of time in the backcountry of the Amazon um, by myself uh, or with like a, a matero, we would say in Portuguese, like a woodsman. But a lot of times I would be out for like two weeks in the woodsman. matero has like a family. And I would be out there by myself. And I always like had these, and you know, when you're in a place for long periods of time, particularly months on end in the forest, like you're just like, there's no internet access. So you're just like kind of left with your own imagination. And so I would fantasize like, man, could you imagine? Cause there's jaguars out there. If a jaguar attacked me, I had a machete and I killed this jaguar and I'd be on the news in Brazil. It's like the gringo who like killed this jaguar in a fight. And like, and I, and it was funny because I've talked to a lot of friends who've had that same fantasy. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, American. But one time, I was there's this one site way far away from our camp called Cornerstone, and um, you have to hike about an hour to get there. And I was banding birds, so I have to get there like well before sunrise to open nets. So I'm walking through the forest at night by myself, and it was a weird night where it's just tons of fog and mist, and I was walking. And I got to a point where when jaguars get upset with you, like you're too close to them or you're entering their territory, as they put their, if this is the ground, they put their face near the ground and they go, and I think it's to like get below the vegetation and that reverberates like across the forest floor. Yeah. And so that happened. There was like a cat. Then it's like, and we're there. And with the fog in my head, I can only see from me to you. Like it was yeah. dense fog, and I had my machete, and was in the 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 just how ridiculous those fantasies were that I had of me actually like killing a jaguar under these conditions is so fantastic. It's so it, it's such bullshit. Like you are so in their realm, and you're such at a disadvantage. And uh, I and anyway, I 
I, let, I, I had this decision to make. Do I make like a 45 minute walk back or do I make like a 10 minute walk to where like the tarp is and the tarp doesn't provide you any protection. But I just kept walking to the tarp where I had my little field set up for, for banding. I just like stood there and waited. But it, yeah, it, like, uh, it was like a dose of reality to like, oh yeah, I could like poke him in the eye or hit him in the jugular. But like, mm-hmm. you're, you're in their realm and they're, you're at their whim. That, know? I mean... That, that makes me think of two things. Also, I think your microphone might be up against your neck. Oh, I hope it's not super muffled. Um, it's gonna. That's probably fine. I, I think you're Gucci Mane, yeah. I, uh, I think you did. I think you hit a button. Oops. Hold up. I felt myself hit a button. Uh oh. There we go. I, th- I think you're still good. Check, check. Yeah, you're good. Okay. Anyways, so that makes me think of two things. One is like, um, is uh, I don't remember the exact statistic, but there was like. A large amount of men that don't play tennis, that that it, uh, they if they had to go against uh, like Venus or Serena Williams, they're like, oh yeah, I think I could get at least like one point. <laughs> and then like I just like visualize like That's the sad. ball like going right through their skull or something <laughs> along those lines. But I, I think, and not to get super political, but this idea of you know uh, about people that. Uh, the unfortunate thing with all the shootings and all that stuff is uh, there are people that say, oh, if I just had my gun, like mm. I, I, right. I, but the thing is, is you can be a really good aim, but unless you have like a military background, you don't have that training of dealing with an actual situation where your right. life is threatened, you know? And that's, that's the thing that I, I, I'm not trying to make an argument either way for it, but I, I think that's a, that's a thing that a lot of people don't consider is that the reality of the situation. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. So if there was a deer, I mean, <laughs> back to the original. <laughs> yeah. I think like, so I used to, I used to be scared that I would get into like, and this is once again, a, a fanciful kind of like unrealistic fear, but I was like, you know, we have, there's a lot of machetes in, in Northern Brazil in the in the central amazon and uh like if i ever got into like a a machete fight with like a drunk person from manaus like it would be similar to like the deer and this person's been using their machete their whole life it's way more and maybe it's gotten into machete fights in the past like what would i do and i realized my one way out would be a one in a hundred shot and i'd be throwing the machete at him yeah and so i spent a a fair bit of time because it was fun like in the woods like throwing machetes yeah. yeah and i could get them to stick into trees like fairly oh, good nice and so i imagine like the deer would be similar it'd be like have one shot and I, if, if that's like an eye poke or like a, a I, kick to the throat that's or something, that's you know? my defense is like the eyes i think like that's what yeah. you gotta go for but, it's a small target yeah yeah and i imagine if that deer is like you know dedicated it can it can still kill you with one eye well 100 so? percent. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so you, you you're gonna give it to the deer um yeah well yeah i'd probably give it to the deer. yeah <laughs> yeah uh, yeah what so, a, what animal are you most afraid of i mean like it's kind of a lame answer but it's it's ticks man mm. like i like it's a good answer well i i had i had i had a uh my, my left ear stopped working like two weeks ago oh my god and, yeah and and it, it's fine now uh, it's probably like a, some obscene earwax thing or something along those lines but then like you know your brain starts going to these places like what if there's a tick right in my ear and it's like and i'm like poking at it and mm. um and i'm like you know i'm gonna get like lyme disease in my ear i realize it's like my whole body but like um yeah so like I, i'm terrified of ticks um would I win, win a fight with a tick? Probably. But. Yeah, you would. <laughs> I hope so. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a lame answer. I mean, I, I'm i not really scared of any animals in the Keweenaw, and maybe you can tell me, is that is that an unjust... I mean... No, I, mean, no, I think it's, in general, like, uh, humans are way scarier than, than virtually all wildlife you'll encounter, unless you're, like, in a river with hippos or... Yeah, you know, um, people up here you hear frequently about uh, fear of wolves, yeah, and uh, that's just completely unfounded. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the history of wolf 
attacks on people. I was listening to a podcast the other day, actually, and they were talking about this in the context of how deadly wolves were during like World War One in Europe, attacking soldiers. And, and I think they must have, I didn't, I didn't look into it, but the only thing I could think of was they were eating the dead soldiers and they were conflating the two. Mm-hmm. Um, J- uh, John James Audubon actually has a passages in his writings about, I think it was during the, uh, I forget which wars. Uh, anyway, there is, it could have been the Mexican-American war. It must, because he wasn't, Anyway, he was looking at like uh, dead Mexican soldiers and like red wolves scavenging their bodies. So, mm. but there's like the the history of wolves actually killing a living person uh, is so rare. It's it, so exceedingly rare. I I know I know this is going to sound at odds with something I'd already said about like this view of success, but I have this minor thing where I'm like, you know what? I, I kind of want to do something that warrants getting a Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I'd shared this with my wife, Sarah, and, uh, and she'd said, you could get attacked by a wolf Cause, because yeah. every, it's so su- significant when it actually happens that every, everyone who's been killed by a wolf has a Wikipedia page. Oh, cool. Apparently that's a thing. And so, yeah. so that, that's, that's if, I, if I can't write a book or anything else. How I'm, would you induce the attack? Um, how would I induce the attack <laughs> with a wolf? Uh... That's a good question. I, I mean, if they scavenge, you could pretend to be dead. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I already kind of walk around my property naked a lot, and mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm, I don't know if, like, if wolves realize that I'm naked or something along those lines. And not like my, my hoodie gives me that much protection. But yeah, probably just spending more time in my in my property naked. That's my that's <laughs> that's my bait, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is a. It's very very rare. But uh, black bears, particularly male black bears, like a 500, 600 pound like male black bear, they'll occasionally eat people. Okay. And the attacks are like, they have a couple YouTube videos of this type of behavior, yeah. this predatory behavior by black bears. It's wild. Because they don't like charge you. Like, a, you know, a grizzly bear would be like, you know, if you come up on a grizzly bear that's like on its kill, it'll like charge you and you're supposed yeah. to play dead and let it bat you around or whatever. Yeah. But like a male black bear that's trying to eat you doesn't charge you. It just walks, kind of like Jason. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, it just pursues yeah. you. And and there's this video of this guy in Canada who's like that big bear's coming. He's throwing rocks at it. Like get away, bear! And uh, he gets in his boat and he's he's like paddling out into a lake. And the bear gets in, is like swimming after him and. Oh, it's crazy. That's super rare. That's like exceedingly yeah. rare. And in fact, like we probably, like we have a bear hunting season up here, so we probably don't let many bears get to that age and that size. But mm. uh, that would be a scary one. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. What, uh, I, I, got, I got like two more questions for you. So the first question is, and, and in, we, we talk about this a lot, specifically with AI, but I kind of think uh, you put it in the same field or the same. What do you think about, uh, I don't want to phrase this. What, do you, what are your views or your thoughts on just a general term of like performance enhancers for academics? Like what, what do you, what, what, I realize we have a lot of thoughts on them, so how would you distill that or like what are your thoughts or what i mean yeah i still want to get tenure <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but i'll speak i think the the landscape is changing so radically i think you know we were talking today we were in a meeting about ai in the educational setting and how you know education can be broken down into teaching skills uh, a particular skill set as well as teaching a student to think. And it's very hard to teach people to think, and it's relatively easier to teach them a skill set. And all these advances in AI are rendering people who teach specific skill sets potentially less and less important. And they have to rethink their jobs. Um, Coding, for example, like we gave that demonstration of writing R code, and you can just give a prompt for a particular package, and it'll write you upload data to ChatGPT Plus, it'll write R code specifically for that data set. So the point being is that the, the learning how to think, and then even above that, 
um, creativity to, to solve pressing problems in complex systems is going to be uh, at a premium. And I think, um, uh, I, I, I honestly uh, believe that like uh, a lot of the advances, particularly in like psychedelic drugs, will, shouldn't say drugs, like specifically like psilocybin, potentially if the taboo goes away, will usher in potentially a new era of uh, really creative thought processes around uh, understanding complex systems, generating novel solutions to wicked problems. Um, so I know there's, I, I feel like, and I, and I don't have any experience with like Adderall or various forms of like methamphetamines, but it seems like that's been in vogue among students for a long period of time to help them focus. But I really think that like whatever substances are available to us to like achieve a higher level of creativity are going to be like really important in the future, mm. like really important. And uh, I think certain psychedelics are going to be, uh, there's going to be pioneering individuals who are going to take those to the next level. I yeah. Think. yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I think like just the whole artificial intelligence revolution, like, um, there's there's this talk about like it's like the logistics function or like this curve that kind of looks like an s on like where we're at with mm -hmm. like ai adoption and i think like we're at like the very very start like i i think my 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 thoughts are that you know we're gonna get to the point where your fridge says you probably want this for dinner and you have the ingredients you know, you know like ai just in every little teeny micro spot just like when like LCD technology got cheaper. That's when you started noticing LCDs on fridges and stuff like that, yeah. right? And so it's going to be the same thing with AI is my thought. And Yeah, it's going to be... I, I imagine we're going to be asymptotic soon with AI because I think, and I forget who it was, like talking about that the limiting factor of, of really taking these, these like, you know, AIs to the next level is that we interact with them with our fingers and so they're inherently the pipeline of getting like the information into our brain to like influence uh, whatever problem we're trying to solve is limited by us like doing this, you know, yeah. and like reading it and, uh, until something like what's Elon Musk company, the, yeah, Neuralink, the Neuralink, yeah, until something like that comes. This this is going to asymptote very quickly. Would, would you get one of those if you had something Depends. that could? directly interface with your computer and you no longer have to type or you just think and all of a sudden that's like entered in through some sort of and then you get data fed back through yeah i mean i i, I um i guess it depends and i don't know enough about brain science about like what part of the brain it would be like there'd be a cost benefit yeah. or a, a, a risk versus reward kind of calculation you'd have to do with what part of the brain they're putting it in and what exactly they're they're what part of the brain functions they're they're influencing but be a highly a, you'd be a highly productive individual if you could break down that limiting factor of the pipeline being your fingers to yeah. direct input into like your memory or draw yeah. upon a vast resource of information as integrated into your thought process would be amazing but uh yeah i mean i i think um the the creative realm of the like, and there's, this is becoming more mainstream as far as, um, you know, John Hopkins and, and Stanford are doing a lot of the therapeutic aspects of like various psychedelics, but there was some studies done, I think in the fifties before like Timothy Leary kind of ruined the study for everybody where they got scientists together and actually dosed them with LSD and then gave them complex problems. And I think potentially in 50 years, if the taboo goes away, very strategic use of psychoactive substances to increase your creativity coupled with like AI as drawing upon vast stores of information be a very, very potent combination to like solving very complex problems. So, yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts on the psychedelics? Well, that's a interesting thing because I... I I have never like I don't even drink coffee like mm -hmm. to that that point, and and it's not it's not a uh, it's not that I think any of those things are wrong like I don't drink I don't smoke or anything along those lines and it's and it's goofy because a lot of my students know like my birthday is four twenty and so they like mm. think that's kind of funny, um, but um, yeah 
it's one of those things where it's like, I probably wouldn't do it. And the only reason is I, I take pride in like my sobriety. And so I'm not sure like what that, with, with regard to what you're saying, like what that like locks or bounds me by. Um, I feel like but, we need a different, different definition of sobriety. Like would yeah. you call drinking, if you take caffeine, yeah. like you eat dark chocolate yeah. and you get a little caffeine buzz, is that like you, are you no longer sober? Like there's clearly it, gradations to sobriety, yeah. right? I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things. It's like the definition of like, um, you know, we were talking about this a while ago about like the idea of like pot versus like alcohol, mm -hmm. right? And you were talking about this culture around like how we evolved using alcohol and stuff like that to where it's acceptable. When, but when you actually stand them next to something like pot, right it would almost seem like that should be flipped in terms of like what's more acceptable right you know um so um it, so I'm, I'm saying like there's that line of yes yeah, so with dark chocolate yeah no one bats an eye um and so i i might just be it might just be my my ideological upbringing which is weird because like all the overlayers like drink a lot and all that mm -hmm. stuff so i i don't know where how I ended up the way I ended up. Um, but yeah. <coughs> here's where the, the, the nuances get interesting. Like, you can induce um, a psychedelic, and I'm no expert in this at all. I just find it like, I think there's a lot of potential here. And it's layered with taboo. And that combination makes it like super interesting, right? Like, so there's like through meditation and mindfulness and different like, you know, forms of yoga, or even taking a, a, a sauna or running great distances, you can induce altered state of consciousness that have positive impacts, not just on your health, but you know, psychological benefits like you know, anti-depression and as well as potentially creativity. And so, if they, if you, it'd be weird to think if you sat in a sauna for a long period of time meditating and you entered some alternate state of consciousness that provided some insight into how your mind works, like you do some sort of exploration of your consciousness, would you say you're sober? I, I guess... Uh, and everything's in, endogenous, yeah. endogenously created. Yeah, I, I'm also not an expert on, on definitions and things like that. I, I suppose the, the difference is like the... It, it's ill-defined because my... My intuition is that it's not an external substance, and so therefore you are still sober. But yeah, I, I understand like the euphoria that you can get with stuff like that. Um, it's a hard question. Maybe I shouldn't do a podcast because I can't answer the hard questions. <laughs> no, no. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, they're hard questions. I don't think yeah. have easy answers, you know. But I don't know. For, for my perspective is like, like uh, base reality is quite limiting. And I feel like if you can perceive reality from different angles, how, however you get there, that generates potentially like new, new solutions to difficult problems, solutions you otherwise wouldn't encounter. And I think that's like the essence of good science, like mm -hmm. hypothesis generation, right? Is like really, really important. Like. Mm -hmm. You make observations either through collecting data or observing nature or observing people, or whatever the case may be, and you generate a hypothesis that's just simply an explanation for the phenomenon you're observing. That That's like a weird black box that some people are really good at it and other yeah. people aren't. And you can train yourself, I think, to become like better at generating hypotheses. But I really, and, I, and I'll stop talking about it, it's like harping on it, but I think, because I think it's like kind of this age of AI where like productivity is increasing. I think there's ways that you can hack that process to improve it. And I mm. think potentially like psilocybin is like potentially one way to do it. Yeah. And it's like, but it's just layered with taboo. Just yeah. like you can't, like I even uncomfortable like at times like talking about it, you yeah. know, because it's like, yeah, you could lose your job potentially if, you know, if yeah. you were not in a, in a Stanford experiment. Yeah. So I, I'd seen kind of, right, so I understand, like, talking about the subject matter in, like, a podcast that's going to get shared, like, with, like, uh, students and faculty <laughs> and stuff like <laughs> that. Yeah, we'll that. edit thing. this out. <laughs> yeah, but, like, 
I'm not suggesting people do it. I'm just yeah. saying that, like, in the horizon moving forward, yeah, like it's gonna, it, it, I could see it playing a big role. Well, what I was gonna add is that I, uh, so Sarah had shared this thing. I believe it was Sarah that shared, like, Michigan Tech is like number one for free speech. I, I haven't really looked into that, huh. um, but there was like some site, um, and I think it, I, I, I barely looked into it, and it seemed like the the thing that put us in. And like the leading point was like that there were no cases of like the school actually trying to like shut anything down or something along those lines. And so that was, I guess, like I said, I, I, I didn't look into any of the motivations behind that site, but I was like, yeah, you know, I feel like a podcast that isn't afraid to get like kind of toward those topics that, that, that kind of goes with just that hand in hand with the idea of like free speech and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think in, in particular, like, universities should be places, ideally, where taboo is stripped away and we can yeah. talk about things honestly, you know? Yeah. Like, you, I mean, I felt bad because I kind of contributed to this where there's, like, um, weird, you know, ph- philosophers who, who, like, it's a philosopher's job to take things to, like, like crazy, illogical conclusions. Yeah. I guess logical conclusions, but they appear to be illogical. But, like, like there's, like, in, in wildlife... Um, there's a group that was KPP killing predators passively or KPK killing predators kindly. And these are like groups of philosophers that have engaged with the idea that like applying kind of human ethics to like animals and that other animals, uh, predators killing prey is inherently unethical. And what do we do about that? And so they're developing ways to either through like, trying to ramp up evolutionary timescales to turn predators to herbivores or to just kill predators writ large. And people, and I, I read a paper and I actually put it on Twitter and it got thousands of retweets and stuff and people making fun of them. And then I felt kind of bad because like there should be space to like explore even like really weird ideas, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah if, if that not, one is weird though. <laughs> it, it will, if, but yeah, if not university, then... Where I mean, yeah, I, I suppose the internet, right? That's the platform, but I, like, f- yeah, like a physical place, right? It's, yeah, it's got to be the university. Um. So I, I have I have one more question for you, and that question is, um, what album do you recommend that you, we just had this conversation? Now, what album should people look up and listen to right after this? Um, so this is, I was thinking about this on the, on the walk over here and, uh, in my youth, I was like a huge Guns N' Roses fan. Mm-hmm. I still am, but I don't listen to them as much cause I don't have that like youthy angst, yeah. you know, I don't like, uh, it, the music doesn't speak to me as much anymore. But that being said is like when Axl Rose left Guns N' or he took the name Guns N' Roses with him and fired his band yeah. and he went into like seclusion for like a decade or more during that decade he wrote an album and i forget how many different guitars like buckethead was on the i'm a big buckethead fan yeah. um i didn't realize buckethead i know what you're talking about but i didn't realize buckethead was on it yeah he was like yeah. a lead guitarist for for several years um and i think they rotated through like 20 different artists on on this album and it was chinese democracy and it was the most expensive rock album ever created. So you could never meet expectations, right? Yeah. But I think that album is really interesting because it's like a rock star who went into utter seclusion, worked on this album for 10 years, and then released it to the world to like uh, horrible reviews. It was, you know, got really bad reviews. <laughs> but if you go and listen to it with like an open mind, it's actually like not a bad album it's yeah. like pretty good like it's got some like some i think it's axel from like the 80s like hardcore rocker kind of you know gutter glam mixture um like him ev- like turning into like an older man like it captures that evolution and him trying to do that you know like but like certain rock certain rock stars like age really gracefully like Bob Dylan did I think yeah. you know Tom Petty did yeah. and others don't like who's the lead singer for The Cure Robert Smith right okay yeah yeah he still like dresses like when he does tour he still like yeah, paints yeah. himself Same up way. like he's 20 and it just seems weird it's like come yeah. on like 
yeah. evolve a little bit with your music. And that was like that Chinese Democracy album is interesting because it's like a concerted effort to like evolve the music yeah. with his age. That's how I feel about it. So yeah, if, if you haven't heard that album and you like Guns N' Roses, you can give that a listen. Interesting. Have you heard the album? I, I've listened to it before, but now I'm going to have to re- revisit it. Yeah. 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 So... Um, you just listened to, well, congratulations for listening to the entire thing. Um, you just listened to Locked in My Office at Michigan Tech. This is our first episode. Um, and <clears throat> one of the things that you can do as a listener, if, if you feel so inclined, is um, make recommendations for who should sit in this kind of... You think that chair is comfortable or uncomfortable? It's a little weird. It's a little weird. It's, it's like, <laughs> like it's... Un- unexceptionally... Or it's, it's like super cushiony or crappily cushiony, I don't know. Anyways, um, so if you want to find someone else to sit in this crappy chair, um, you can go to O-B-E-R-L-O-I-E-R.com. Kind of has like a nice melody to it. Overlawyer.com slash limo, locked inside my office. Um, and there will be um, you know, a listing of our um, listing of the podcasts, um, like the episodes, and also a spot where you can make a recommendation. And you're going to have to give me a way to get in contact with them. Um, yeah, so now now we painted a picture of what this what what the podcast could look like, and so now everyone's going to be expecting like birds having sex and like <laughs> doing LSD and stuff like that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening. Any closing words, Jared? No, no. It's been a, an honor to be locked in your office. Thanks, Beautiful. Shane. Thank yeah. you.